Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. You're uh, still chatting with somebody. Tell them uh, Acts chapter 2. Anybody know what today is? It's Pentecost Sunday, so uh, being a, a Pentecostal church, we, we want to talk about that a little bit today, and um, I want to invite you to go to Acts chapter 2 with me. We'll be in a, a couple different places here, and I'll try to uh, give you some heads up. Genesis 41, 38, and Numbers 11, 24, and these contexts kind of merge into one thought. Um, one spirit for all, one spirit for all. You know that it's it's by one spirit that God manifests himself in different ways within the body of Christ, and it's one spirit that we receive and brings us into fellowship, and uh, let's be clear from the outset that when you receive Christ as your Lord, the spirit of God comes and dwells within us, amen? Aren't you glad for that, that he, he comes and he dwells within us, that we become vehicles of his presence? We don't need the Ark of the Covenant anymore because you are you are the place in which God dwells by his spirit, so Thank God for that. I don't want to diminish the Ark of the Covenant, but I do want to say that God has set his dwelling among men, according to Scripture, that he puts himself within our lives. And so uh, that has different effects. But I want to say today that we shouldn't feel that we can do this uh, Christian life on our own. We can't build this church. We can't establish our families. Uh, We can't live the Christian life that God wants us to on our own. No one's ever been able to because it's not by a skill. Even back in the Old Testament, they recognized this. Remember, they go to rebuild the temple after they've been in exile, and and uh, God speaks to Zechariah, and he says, it's not by might nor by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. You're not going to accomplish it simply with the arm of flesh. And I feel that you can't accomplish spiritual things purely through fe- fleshly means. Now, God uses our bodies he uses our voice box. He uses our, our thinking. He uses who we are. But, but he is the wor- one working in us, and it's by his power that eternal things and lasting things are accomplished. And so, uh, you know, people can win a following when we talk about um, building a church. We're, we're trying to hear um, the vision God's put upon our heart is we want to we establish a community of faith that's, that's a spiritual family. Okay? And, and that happens invisibly. It's not just what happens here. In fact, every true believer across this city and state and around the world, we're part of the church with a capital C. Are you, are you with me? True believers in Christ are part of the church. But here, we want to be the local manifestation of that. We want to be the one on the corner of, uh, of Diamond and Blackberry. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And I know that Nat knows that because she lives right Yeah. I'm telling you, if ever I'm up here and I forget something, it's intimidating to be up here, and then you start talking, and then you forget stuff. Anyway, but it is BlackBerry. You're very right. We want to build the people of God in a manifest way in this location, and that's God's, that's God's calling for us. But we can't do that without the help of the Holy Spirit. We need His Spirit to do that. And uh, no one's ever been able to build a real spiritual community under Christ without His Spirit. Right? You can... You can, do, you can build a cult and a following through the arm of flesh. Remember, Jesus said to the Pharisees that you scour the earth and look for one disciple. You make them twice the, the, the servant of hell that you yourselves are. And if you know anything about the Pharisaic movement at the time of Jesus, it was the largest religious sect in all of Judaism. And so they were being quite successful at doing that. Now, not, not all Pharisees were ungodly. Not all were disconnected from God. But it just goes to show, and you can see this within the cults as well, that you can build a following apart from the Spirit of God. But the true, the true church can only be built by the Spirit of God. And the supernatural, uh, the supernatural requires the working of a supernatural God. We're told in the Bible that creation is the working of the Trinity, uh, you remember that it says that God said, and it says that the Spirit hovered. And in John 1, it reminds us that the Word, nothing was made except what was made by the Word. It's a Trinitarian working in creation. And salvation is the working of the Trinity as well. 
that it's, it's the Father who sends and designs the plan of salvation, the Son who goes, and the Spirit who appropriates the work of Christ to our lives so that we're, we're truly saved. He, he's the one who does the inner working of regeneration within us. And ministry is the work of the Trinity. We need to understand that, that the Father desires to bring children into his family, and the Son has gone to seek and to save the lost, and the Spirit is sending out, and he's also simultaneously, in addition to empowering his church to be outgoers, he's also working in the world to convince of sin and of righteousness. Did you know that? That he's at work doing these things. You can't have a supernatural change or a life-filled community without the Spirit of God. And... Uh, it's surprising, too, when you look at the people that God uses <laughs> to build his church. Come on, isn't it true? Like, uh, I'm telling you, this is one of the things that heaven must be laughing about, is that a shy kid could ever be a pastor. But for me, that's one thing. But when you look in the, in the Bible and you see uh, the ones that God chose to be his disciples, um, to build his church into a global church that it is today, they wouldn't have been able to do it without the help of the Spirit. They were a few local fishermen, a tax collector. I mean, you're going to send people out into the world to convince somebody of a new religion or an extension of an old religion. You're not going to probably pick a tax collector unless you're going to accompany that with the power of the Spirit of God. Are you with me? Can we laugh a little bit? Tax day's over. It's gone and passed. Uh a religious zealot, and some other guys whose professions were so unnotable that they're not even mentioned. Uh, we have no big celebrities, very few nobles, no power, except for the power and the authority that Christ would give through his spirit. So then the question becomes, if God is going to pour out his spirit, what is the outpouring of his spirit for? And I think the answer to that is for service. When Jesus was getting ready to ascend and we're coming to our scripture in just a moment. We'll start in Acts 2. Uh, when, when Jesus was getting ready to ascend, he said, Wait at Jerusalem till the power from on high shall come upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So uh, for those guys, it meant they're kind of done with their profession as it was. Life uh, in its comfort zone was obliterated. And I, I want to I want to warn you that if you start giving in to the Spirit of God, He's going to push the walls of your comfort zone out. And, and if you ever want to live a great adventure, that's a great thing to have happened, right? To, that God has pushed the walls of our comfort zone out. If we want to live in a nice, neat little place, don't serve God. Because God is the God who lives beyond borders and our borders. And He will push us beyond that if we'll follow him with all of our heart. And to me, that ought to be exciting and refreshing and helpful because, you know, you're not even safe in your own home if God is not in it. It's worth thinking about that we, our little comfort zones are really little facades. And every time something tragic happens in our nation, we feel that comfort shaken a little bit, our security shaken a little bit. There's not secure places in this world except in God. And so we need to trust in him and realize that if he has uh, is pushing the boundaries of our comfort zone out that we were made for bigger boundaries than what we have. Do you see what I'm saying by that? That those areas where he's pushing out and he's, he's causing us to go out and we feel a little uncomfortable, it's not the person we're meant to be that's uncomfortable. It's the person we were that's uncomfortable. But God wants to uh, use us in eternal ways for eternal purposes and and that's going to stretch us and challenge us if we'll say yes to the Holy Spirit. And I hope that won't be the moment that you check out of this message. Because I think it's really exciting to follow God. And God knows how to speak our language. He knows how to take us at his right pace and the, the right pace for us as well. And so let's trust him with it. But uh, when we talk about him anointing us for service, um, it's it's... It's God reprioritizing our life through the help of His Spirit. Let me say something. We, we need, uh, in terms of ministry here, there's some areas of, that we need to fulfill, some areas of help in terms of ministry. And sometimes I find that when it comes to the things of God, um, we feel like it's a great sacrifice to do those things. But when it comes to the things that we want to do, we'll, push, we'll go to the nth degree to do that. 
because what I found out is that we will do whatever we want to do and things that we would consider extreme sacrifice for the sake of Jesus. If we really want to do it, we'll do it for us. Do you know what I mean by that? I'm trying to challenge us today to reprioritize our lives around the Lord and say, whatever God wants me to do, I'll go to the ends of the earth for that and, and kind of say to ourselves, maybe I'm making too great a sacrifice just for the things that I want. Um, I saw this um, thing last night. I probably shouldn't say who it is, but uh, it was a popular artist, and they were singing in a church. And it wasn't a Christian service. It wasn't a, a Christian artist. And the place was packed. And it occurred to me how sad that was because it was in Great Britain. And I thought they probably couldn't fill that church if it wasn't for that performer. And how sad that is that we would give ourselves to things that are not eternal, things that we want to do because they please us rather than the things that please God. And I am the first one to acknowledge that going to church isn't always fun. And can I say to you, it's not intended to be. It's intended to be us coming before the Lord and receiving from Him and offering praise that's to Him. And if our heart is oriented right, there's going to be a level of fun in it. You understand what I mean? But it's not always intended to be fun and entertaining. We're called to do uh, greater things. So let's read our passage here before I get carried away preaching on other things. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And uh, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came and rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were stayed in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them in their own language, their own language being spoken. Verse 7, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? And then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, a bunch of different places near Cyrene. Uh, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Jerusalem, Cretans, uh-oh, Paul tells us about them, and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun and said they have had too much wine. And then Peter stood up in, uh, with the eleven, and he raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, well, I pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy, and I will show wonders in heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will turn to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And look down with me to verse, I think it's verse 32 here where Peter continues in his message. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. He has poured out what you now see and hear. It's the noise that brought them together. It was the things that they were seeing that brought uh, people around to see what was going on, and it's by the Holy Spirit that these things Happen. Let me mention the first thing here that it mentions. He says, in the last days, God says, I will, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. I want, you to, uh, I want you to acknowledge this with me, that it's God who is saying, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay? This is a God thing. This is God's design. This is God's plan. It's a plan that goes back into the Old Testament and precedes even the coming of, of Jesus. It has anticipated the coming of Jesus. It's, that's in mind. But the plan is that God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. The, uh, uh, the definition of the word that's used here for pour out is to cause to fully experience, to pour down on people like rain. He's going to cause it 
to reign the presence of the Holy Spirit. What a strange metaphor when you're talking about something that's impersonal like rain and comparing it to something which we'll talk about in just a moment that's personal like the Holy Spirit. He's going to pour out upon them the Holy Spirit. This is God's plan. And the outpouring, it comes to, if you you look at Scripture here, the ones that the, the Spirit is poured out upon are those who are obedient, those who are washed, and those who are persevering. Remember, Jesus said, um, wait at Jerusalem until the promise from the Father comes, the, the promise from on high comes. Wait at Jerusalem, wait. One thing we don't like to do when it comes to spiritual things is wait. We don't want to wait. We don't want to. We don't want to tarry. The old, the old uh, Pentecostal word that used to be used, and I know it's probably used in other traditions as well, is to tarry, to tarry at the altar, to wait on the Lord for an appropriate moment. That you you wait upon Him, and and we used to talk about praying through, and now we can get it all done in five minutes somehow. And I wonder what we're missing. Because I know if I have my choice between a McDonald's hamburger, you know what I mean, and prime rib that's been smoked for a long time, what do you think I'm going to (laughs) choose? Every single time, hands down, it's going to be the slow-cooked meal, not the speedy one. And and I know that is kind of a strange uh, picture for us here, but when you think about what happens when we, we wait in the presence of God, it's not just about a long prayer list. We talked about this last week. There's something that changes in us when we wait upon the Lord. God's doing something in us. He's transforming us. It may be that he's changing our circumstances, but simultaneously, the other thing that can be happening is that God is changing us. And as we soak in his presence, his, we're saturated and he permeates who we, we are. And it leads to the things like what the religious leader said of Peter and John we perceive that these men have been with Jesus. There's something about them that's like Jesus. And I don't think it was just that they saw them with Jesus. I think it was more. I think it was something Jesus-esque about them. You know what I mean by that? that you, can, you can sense some quality of, of Christ. And if you've been a Christian a long time, you've probably experienced this. You've probably come to meet people that you just get a sense about them that they're a Christian. Have you ever experienced that? You just get a sense. There's some, they're a Christian. And you may not have exchanged any words, but you get something from who they are. And maybe it's deep calling to deep. And I don't want to get weird with this because I don't think we need to get weird about it. But maybe there's kind of a spiritual recognition that sometimes can take place in this. And it comes from being in his presence. So he pours out his spirit. And the surprising thing is that God wants to do it, but often he waits to find those who also want it to happen to them. Remember in um, Luke chapter, I think it's chapter 11 here, when uh, Jesus says, ask and you will receive. And if you know the way that that word is, ask means not just, not just ask once, but it means continue to ask. Okay? Seek, and the word there means continue to seek. And uh, knock, and the word there is continue to knock, and it will be open to you. And then the very next thing he says is, how many of you being evil will give uh, good gifts to your children? And then it says this, how much more will the, will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? In Matthew, it's good gifts. In Luke, who's very concerned about the Holy Spirit, it's not that Matthew's not. Luke has a very special emphasis. He says, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Remember the previous word, ask and you shall receive? And then it comes again later in the context, and it shows us this contextual bridge between the two, that the asking, one of the things we need to continue to ask for is for the Holy Spirit to come. And you might say, well, I've already been saved, and so I already have the Holy Spirit. It's true. It's true. Uh, But what I'd like to show in just a few moments is that We need not only the Holy Spirit to come and dwell, but we need his power to overcome us. We need to be filled, and I I will argue from Scripture that we need to be filled again and again with the Holy Spirit for his power to be working through us. And you see over and over again, like, I know God's Spirit lives within us, and we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but you see in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, I think it's in verse 1, that we're to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. This is talking about coveting the good things of God, and that they're available to us, but he wants us to ask for those things. 
and he pours out his spirit upon us. Um, let me just say this now, because I don't want to f- lose the moment. In Acts chapter 2, would you recognize that Peter, at least Peter, is there? In Acts chapter 2, I mean, he's the one delivering the sermon. He's explaining the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Would you agree the Spirit's been poured out on Peter? Okay, I think it's implied by the context. In Acts chapter 4, he comes back from having preached in a difficult situation. And he they quote Psalm 2 there. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? And, and I think uh, after having preached the gospel, they've come up against some opposition. And they've poured out. And then the Bible says... And the place was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, again, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Again. And then we hear in Ephesians chapter 5, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled. And the word is continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to stay full of the Spirit. And so God rewards those who are seeking him in this way. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. That, to me, is one thing. Another thing is, is when we say, not only do I want to have you dwell within me, I want to be, be immersed in you, okay? And that's the call today, is to, that he wants to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And what is being poured out? The spirit, the spirit. I'd like you to notice, he says, I will pour out my spirit, verse 17. Look at verse 17 again, Acts chapter 2. I will pour out, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. And I'd like you to notice, uh, too, we'll come to this in a minute, but last days, uh, what is written here has already happened a long time ago. About 2,000 years ago, would you agree? Okay. About 2,000 years ago, and already they're calling this last days. Okay. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he inaugurated an epoch of time known as the last days. We're in it. And the reason that's important is that what has been promised here, I think, continues on to this day until Jesus comes. But he says, I will pour out my spirit. And I think we need to get reacquainted with the Holy Spirit. He's known in Scripture, and unlike Christ who is in flesh, the Spirit can at times seem nebulous to us. Like we, we don't know exactly what the Spirit is. But the Spirit is present everywhere throughout Scripture. And the earliest reference we have is the Spirit in creation hovering over the faces of the water at creation, right? Remember reading that? The Spirit hovers over the face of the waters at creation. And um, he's present. Uh, those who are trusting him, you, you already know this, but um, he's present in a special way for us. He's everywhere present, the Spirit of God is. I mean, right now, uh, if somebody's in need of him somewhere across town, the Holy Spirit is there in his omnipresence, right? Is that too weird to bring up a little theology on Sunday morning? Well, uh, I hope not because that's what we're going to do. Uh, but he's there. But when it comes to believers, he's there. He's, he's with us in a special way. It's a, it's a kind of incarnational presence. I don't want to get weird about it. Like we don't become exactly like little Jesuses, but the Spirit is transforming us into his likeness and so that there's an incarnational presence where the Spirit comes and dwells again in flesh. This is, does not. This does not make you the Son of God in the exact way Jesus was. Okay, everybody with me? Because I don't want us to be confused about that. When it says that Jesus is the only begotten Son, the actual word there means He's the one of a kind Son of a God. There's nobody like Him. But when it comes to the Spirit dwelling in flesh, that happens again and again because God's Holy Spirit comes and dwells and empowers flesh. He says, it's my spirit. I'd like you to admit, uh, notice some things about the Holy Spirit here. First of all, uh, the Holy Spirit is personal. We hear in uh, John especially that he will send, Jesus said, I will send another comforter. He uses the word paraclete, and, and that word is used also of Jesus as the advocate, the one who stands beside. So he's sending another of a similar kind of comforter when when he says, I must go, but it's needful for me to go so that I can send the comforter to you, he's telling us that this is, I'm going, but another kind of like me is coming, and he will be with you, and he'll remain with you. 
And this tells me, because Jesus is personal, this tells me the Holy Spirit is personal. In fact, in John, you can see this in John 14, verse 16, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, John 16, 7, that actually Greek goes against its own grammar rules in order to emphasize the fact that, that the Spirit of God is personal. Because this, you don't need to know this for the test, but I just want to mention that when you see the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in Scripture is a neuter word. It doesn't have gender attached to the noun. But when you see the pronouns that go with that noun, they're masculine. And that's a violation of Greek grammar because the pronoun ought to match the noun. And what John is doing is intentionally showing us that he is person and not thing. Okay, that's really important that we understand the Holy Spirit is not thing. It grates me a little bit when I hear people call the Holy Spirit an it because John has gone way out of his way to say he. I'm not trying to suggest that he has some kind of corporal body that's masculine, but I'm trying to say that John has made the point the Holy Spirit is personal so that we can have relationship with him as a person and not as a thing and not as some kind of force in some cults. They think the Spirit is uh, a force. It's a personage, not the real divine person. Okay? So he's personal. One of the most illuminating passages on this is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, where Paul warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, a word which means to cause someone to be sad or sorrowful or distressed. Right? Um, one... Uh, Dictionary even says that this word can mean irritated or insulted or offended. You can offend the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? So, and it tells us the behaviors that will do that. And a lot of it has to do with relational problems between believers. That grieves the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Uh, or insults Him. Uh, and things don't get insulted. Even if you don't talk nice to Alexa, it doesn't care. But the Holy Spirit is offended or grieved when we don't live the right kind of Christian life. And this shows that he is personal. Second, he is relational. We see this in some of the noun or the verbs that are used with him. He's speaking, teaching, revealing, reminding, convicting, guiding, and dwelling. These are things that happen between people. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit being um, personal, he's also relational. The spirit isn't a standoffish hermit kind of person. This is a, a spirit in a, a person who is getting up close and personal relationally with us. That he's more intimate than anyone you've ever known. Because he lives within us. He's always with us. And this is, this is good news. Unless, of course, you find yourself sinning when you're by yourself. And then you need to realize you're not by yourself. Holy Spirit's with you. And sees it all. And so he convicts of sin. Spirit doesn't come to places. Did you know that? He comes to people. Coming to places is more of an Old Testament model, like when the Spirit would rest upon the tabernacle. Well, that's been replaced. Remember, the fire rested upon the tabernacle. And we just read that in the New Testament, in the day of Pentecost, the fire came and rested in the midst of the group. And then it split off and it rested on each individual. And the metaphor is this, is that you together are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Like when we gather together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we go our separate ways, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, wherever you go. And that's exciting. That should be a paradigm shift for how we live, because the Holy Spirit is with us. He doesn't come to places, He comes to people in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, not on all geography, not on all great landmarks, not on all of the best temples and churches that the land can build, on flesh. That's where I'll pour out my spirit. And so this is relational. And uh, the closing of the second letter to Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 14, Paul says, uh, talks about the Father and the Son the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit, particularly the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. He's with you. This is his wish. Third is he's divine. 
he has an elevated place, and it's always among the Godhead. In the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God is known, but it's with the coming of Jesus that the Spirit of God is more fully understood. Uh, He says in Matthew 28, you're to go out and make disciples of all nations, and you're to baptize them. We're, We're doing baptism next week, and if you haven't been baptized yet, I encourage you to consider doing that. It's not too late. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so it would seem strange to us. You'd be surprised to find um, to find any other name coming after the Father and the Son than the Spirit. You know, if it said, the, this is going to sound weird, but I'm trying to make a point here. The Father, Son, and the Archangel Michael, that ought to cause you to be like, whoa, because there's an equality of office, co-equal. The Father is co-equal. The Son, co-equal. The Spirit, co-equal. And in fact, um, in the Nicene Creed, you'll remember hearing, if you know the Nicene Creed, uh, it says, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. This has been... This has been classical Christianity from from very early, is that the Holy Spirit is worshipped with the Father and the Son. And so we need to understand His divinity. And if that uh, is a struggle, I would encourage you to read Acts chapter 5. I'll I'll read it for you, but uh, chapter 5, verse 3 through 4, that interesting story that happens in the early church with Ananias and Sapphira. Remember them? They lied and they died, if you need a quick title for that. They lied and they died. And it wasn't that um, the church was kind of selling all that they had. People were selling all they have, and they would bring it to the church, and they would help everybody, and they shared. They shared everything. Okay, and it was a beautiful moment in church history where selfishness seems to have been completely eradicated, except for Ananias and Sapphira. And they went and sold. The problem wasn't that they didn't bring it all. That's not the problem here. The problem is that they brought a portion of it and acted like they brought it all. That's where the problem is. Okay, do you see the difference? God's not mad because they didn't bring everything. Like, Ben, that'd be a great passage to preach on, wouldn't it? <laughs> He's mad because he didn't bring everything. He's not mad about that. He's mad that they tried to deceive the church. And the Bible says when Peter came in, full of the Holy Spirit, he said to them, why is it that Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he goes on at the end of verse 4, you've lied not to man but to God. Lie to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. You see that? There's a connection that's made there, a bridge. He is divine. And um, he is dynamic. I want to I be dynamic too. I don't want to rest here too long. But the Holy Spirit is dynamic. He's hovering. Notice the, the active verbs here. He's hovering. He's moving. He's empowering. The wind is blowing. He's manifesting. And he can manifest himself anytime he wants with voluntary vessels. He mediates salvation. He's changing us. You usually uh, see action in conjunction with passages on the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is working and doing something. He's working in us. He's working on us. He's working through us. And he's in the world working around us. Out of his fullness comes his gifts. So when you see the, the power gifts, you know, um, the Spirit does many things in our life. One, He, um, he um, I'm trying to think of the right word here, mediates salvation to us so that it's lived out in our lives. It's made real to us in this world. And then uh, another thing that He does is He produces holiness within us. The Holy Spirit, His first name is holy, right? So He's creating holiness out of us, and He's, he's making us into... Uh, conformed to the image, he's conforming us to the image of Christ. Then, he's also doing power works in us. And I see no passage that dismisses this or sends it into the past. Okay? He's doing power works within us. And, and when we see this, we see things related to his knowledge. We see things related to uh, his power. We see things related to his, his speaking. And you can see that the Holy Spirit, you know, that if he's God, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, and he's omnipresent. And this is a way in which God can work in our lives out of his omnipotence. One of the gifts uh, that we hear about in the Corinthian letters is the gift.
of uh, a word of knowledge, okay? A word of knowledge is when God drops some piece of knowledge into your heart that you wouldn't otherwise know about, okay? And how can he do that? Well, he, he's omniscient. He knows all things. So out of his grand uh, storehouse of omniscience, he can give us the detail that's needed. And I think when Peter said, Satan has filled your heart to light of the Holy Spirit, that I think it was an exercise of this word of knowledge that he knew that they had lied about it. Okay? Now, you might be able to say, well, they, he found out some other way. Maybe, but it seems full of the Holy Spirit suggests that Peter is speaking in a prophetic way to this situation and saying, I know that this is true. Okay? Um, um, omnipotence. When we pray for people, um, my hands are as empty and incapable as anybody else's. But God can do mighty things because he's powerful. So when I lay hands on people, I'm asking, Lord, as I lay hands on them, you lay hands on them. And let your power do what I can't do. Because I can't heal anybody. I can mend wounds. In fact, even doctors can't heal people. They can mend wounds and fix problems. But the healing takes place in some supernatural way. Like if a doctor mends up a a body that's dead, it's not going to heal. Right? Because something else is at work in that. It's God's power that's doing this. The Holy Spirit is dynamic. And he's going to pour out his spirit in the last days. Peter says that Pentecost is the beginning of the last days outpouring. He substitute what Joel says afterward. Joel says, afterward I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter interprets that as in the last days I'll pour out my spirit. They say these men are drunk. And Peter says, it's not that. This is... This is that thing you knew about from the prophet Joel that's happening here this day. The last days are Peter's interpretation of Joel's afterwards. And this is the time inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Christ, and it continues until his coming. All flesh. He says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Notice there, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. If you have the NIV, it's not um, the typical word you would find for people. This is, uh, this is actually the word for flesh, but we should understand it as he means all people. But it's interesting that he would use the word flesh when there's probably a more precise word that means people here. And your translation might have, I'll pour out my spirit in all flesh. I was, I was looking at this, and I was tracing this through. And do you know, the first person the Bible mentions as having the spirit of God with him in a uh, precise way is Joseph. And that's in Genesis chapter 41. And this is when um, I know that the Spirit is there, and it's going to talk about His Spirit not always striving with, with men in uh, Genesis chapter 6. But you come to chapter 41, and Joseph is in Egypt, and Pharaoh's had these dreams, and he's really disturbed by them. And he calls all his wise men in, and they can't give him an answer to what this means. And, and Joseph says, I can't do it either, but my God can do it. And so he uh, he interprets the dream, and and that's when um, that's when Pharaoh says about him that the plan. It says the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all his officials, and so Pharaoh asked them, "Listen, because this is a question we need to ask today: Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom the spirit of God, one in whom is the spirit of God?" Pharaoh recognized that of all of his wise men, they didn't have the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God dwelling with, and this is from a secular king, or secular is not even the right word, uh, a pagan king, a heathen king who is, who is not necessarily a follower of Yahweh. Okay? And he recognizes the Spirit, a Spirit at least, of God dwells with Joseph in a peculiar way. And the question is, among all the people that I know in the land, among all the people in the world, is there anyone besides him that has the Spirit of God? I think that's an important question. Do we not only have the Spirit of God, but are we, are we empowered by the Spirit of God? Can we find anyone like this man? God intends to change that, and uh, he's done it. Notice that it says, upon all flesh... And I've been trying to labor this point a little bit, but I think it's important because it means on physical people. I don't want to overcomplicate this, but it's interesting that the word flesh is used for people when another word would do uh, proficiently here. Among the contrasts in the Bible, 
often our spirit and flesh. The flesh wars against the spirit in Galatians 5 and the spirit against the flesh, and the two are contrary to one another, the Bible tells us. And so it's interesting that now we're seeing the joining of spirit and flesh. This Flesh doesn't always mean sinful nature. Sometimes it does, but not always. Flesh can mean this tangible part of our body, the, or people can mean people. But it's interesting that it would use the word flesh among those contrasts. And it seems to me the reason for saying this uh, is that it's the way that the power of the Spirit enables the weakness of flesh to do the work of God that it cannot do without Him. He's going to pour out His Spirit upon flesh. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. We're not going to accomplish the Christian life. We're not going to build a godly home. We're not going to build a great church. We're not going to live uh, in such a way that will impact the world unless the Spirit of God empowers flesh. Amen. That's good preaching, Pastor. On a Sunday morning of Pentecost, we need to have the power of the Spirit to rest upon us. And I'd like you to notice it's on all kinds of flesh, on people of all kinds. This cannot just mean the apostles proper. You know what I mean? Disciples minus Judas plus one, whether that's Matthias or uh, Paul. Okay? Because the category is too broad. And it's made plain by Luke recording the same physical signs for the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, uh, the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 19 that they have the same thing. Remember, Peter goes and preaches the message. He's not even done preaching in Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius' house. Do you remember this? He's not even done preaching, and they start to speak in tongues. And he's like, these guys haven't been baptized yet. How can we forbid baptism when they've expressed the same sign that we had? The same spirit has fallen upon them. This is how, this is how Peter interpreted that. The same spirit fell upon them. How can we forbid baptism? They've not been circumcised. That's a problem theologically for them, uh, and they'd not been baptized. And what this shows us is that God pours out his spirit upon all flesh, and he's trying to make that connection through. And that's the point, at least to me. The point is the same spirit is being poured out on Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles, and I think expands to us as well. And I believe that God wants to pour out his spirit on us. It's rare today to find someone it may be rare today. I shouldn't say it's rare because I know plenty of people. But it may be rare today for some to find someone who's completely directed and empowered by the Spirit of God. That was a question, actually. Is it rare today? Sorry. Notice, finally here, we'll prophesy. They will prophesy. When people were filled with the Holy Spirit, extraordinary things happened in Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Uh, he says, exalt to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on you uh, out what he has poured out what you now see and hear. And what that tells me is that when the Holy Spirit came, there were manifest signs. Okay? And I know there's lots of different opinions on this. Uh, but it seems to me the normative sign is some kind of spirit-inspired speech that takes place. Spirit-inspired speech. And this, is, this has a long history that goes back to Moses. Uh, you remember when the Lord set uh, his spirit on the 70 elders. Moses was getting burned out because he was having to meet with a bunch of different people all day long, and he was getting just worn out. Remember that? And his father-in-law says to him, um, dude, you need to get some help, and lots of it. And so they appoint 70 elders, and Moses calls them together. And the Lord says, listen, because this is really important to the passage we just read, I will take from the spirit that's on you, and I will put it on them. And that's exactly what happened when the Lord did that. And I'll read it for you. Moses went out, and he told the people what the Lord had said, and he brought together 70 of their elders to stand around the tent. And then the Lord came down in a cloud, and he spoke with them, and he took some of the power of the Spirit that was upon him and put it on the 70 elders. Do you remember? The, the visible fire came, and it dwelt in the midst, and then it split off, and it rested on each one. Okay, Similar thing taking place here. It's supposed to be a cue for us. When the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do so again after that. However, Two men, so this is where we get the 72, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad, they missed the meeting, 
and they remained at their in their camp, they were listed among the elders. So <laughs> apparently all you need to do is have your name on the list. You didn't even need to be present. Wouldn't that be great for all that's going on in church any Sunday? Is if you've got your name on the list, you're getting blessed. Okay, you might not even be here. Well, yeah, so I, John, you're not supposed to be excited about that. You want to be here. Anyway, <laughs> so these guys were just listed among the elders, but they didn't go out of the tent of meeting, yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. The young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Love that those names, Eldad and Medad. Sounds like they're from West Virginia. If you're from West Virginia, I apologize. <laughs> Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide ever since youth, he spoke up and he said, Moses, my, serv- uh, my Lord, stop them. Listen to what Moses says. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord, would, <laughs> the Lord would put his spirit on them. Man, that is awesome. This is Moses reaching out into the future and saying the thing that Joel is going to say. In the latter days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is God's design from the beginning. You know, we often look at a moment in time and we we fail to see the big vision of what God's trying to do. Like if you look at the moment in time when God is establishing the nation of Israel, you may forget that the reason he's doing that is that he may win all men. And when you see him pouring out his spirit on a prophet, we may forget that what he wants to do is pour out his spirit on all flesh. Something like this happened at Pentecost, which I mentioned, the, the fire and the flame. We can see the relationship between the two. You hear Moses' wish all that, that all God's people were prophets, and his Lord would, the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. We might want to downgrade prophecy here. But context won't let us do that in the book of Acts because what Peter is referring to is spirit-inspired speech. What this does is expand prophecy instead of diminish it to include include all of it, both the instantaneous and the presently revealed and the communication of past uh, revelation. What I mean by that, I think preaching is a part of prophecy, but it's not all of it. And when I was growing up, I felt like on the other side of things, if it's prophecy, it's got to be instantaneous and ecstatic. And I don't think that's true either. And the reason why is because a lot of the Old Testament prophets received the prophetic word, and then they wrote it down. Not only did they write it down, they wrote it in Hebrew poetry. And that doesn't come quickly. So they took time to slow down and to write the word. So it's all that. It's any time anybody is in right relationship with God in close proximity and they're hearing his voice and they're communicating it. It could be prophecy. And he wants us to be, all of us, mouthpieces for him. Not, not weirdos running around and saying, thus saith the Lord when it's not God speaking. I don't, want, I don't want fake words from God. I don't care how glorious it seems. I want the real deal. And I don't care if it doesn't seem glorious. If somebody's standing up here reading the monotone from a monotone voice, the word of God, that's preferable than any dramatic false prophecy. Come on, true? It doesn't have to be either or. (laughs) Jonah, when he went to Nineveh, was not too excited to preach his message. He wasn't dynamic, I'm sure. But the Spirit of God ripped their hearts out and gave them hearts of flesh, right? They responded to it. But I think God wants us to be able to be mouthpieces for him, and that may be that when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, he might put something on your heart. Zach was telling me the other day, I hope this is all right to share, that he was traveling. I don't, were you guys in Tibet or Nepal at this point with, with Johnny? Asia. Let's just say Asia. And uh, he said his friend was with him, and they were talking to a lady. This isn't really my story to, sh- to share, but God put something on his friend's heart to share with that lady, and it opened up the door because it was something that she needed to hear. And I'm going to let him tell the details of that. It's really fascinating. But God knows the person that you're witnessing to. And he knows what's needed in any moment. And there's the eternal truths and there's timely truths. You know what I mean? That God's God's got something timely that he wants to say. And if we're we're, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, he, he will use us in both to speak the 
the timeless and the timely. And uh, I want that for myself. How about you? So let's not downgrade prophecy to be, some people want to downgrade it, it's just preaching now. It's not. That's part of it. It's much bigger than that. It also includes spirit-inspired, ecstatic, instantaneous speech that God may have you lift up your voice, as we heard a little bit ago today, where he wants to speak through you in a particular moment. And it may also be what's happening right now, is that God knows better than I do and better than you do what we need to hear. Do you know sometimes people say, Pastor, what did you, how did you know that that's what I needed to hear? Like, I didn't. When I was growing up, I thought my pastor was looking in my windows because he knew exactly what I was doing. <laughs> and what I, what I needed to realize is the Spirit of God knew exactly what I was doing, and he didn't even have to, pastor didn't even have to know the Spirit of God had my number. And he said to my pastor, you need to preach this text. And it got me. Come on, are you with me? So it's, it's much more than that, but he wants us to be open to be full of the Spirit. And this is, if this is troubling to you, um, Will you will you let it incubate along with this question? If he wanted to, would I let God do this kind of work in my life in this way? Okay? You might be troubled by the fact that I mentioned prophecy, like your paradigm doesn't have room for that. Um, would you just be willing to say or ponder this question? Is this scriptural along with, if he wanted to, would I trust God to do this in my life? Okay? Since I was a small kid, I, I looked at old pictures. And back in the day, we used to have them in books. Remember that? Picture albums? <laughs> now they're all on our phones, and we could look at them any time. But we had picture albums, and I don't know how yours were, but ours had the sticky pages with the cellophane that went over the top. And I love to look at those. I don't know why, but maybe I was a weird kid. But I like to go back and look at old pictures and think about what was going on. I love the things of the past, and I, I like to look at them and wonder what they were thinking and what was going on in their lives at that moment, what was going on in the world. And I think that's bled over a little bit into how I read Bible stories. But I think there are two things that we have to remember when we read the book of Acts, because it's kind of a picture book of the early church. The first thing is that this is our story. Acts is our story. Do you know, the book of Acts doesn't really have a proper end. I mean, go back and read it. It's got just Paul in house arrest. And it doesn't be like, and this is the writing that concludes this book and all the accounts of the Acts of the Apostles. It doesn't do that. It's still open. It's our story. It's the story of how the church was founded. And everything the gospel's done around the world can be traced back to that miraculous history in the Mediterranean world to an outpouring of power. Okay, that's the first thing, remember, when we read the book of Acts, as we read here, that's just the beginning of the book. And when Jesus says, I'll pour out my spirit and you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, that's the outline of the book of Acts. And the end of the earth, it's still going, isn't it? We're still seeing the ends of the earth reached. This um, coming January, we're going to go to some far reaches of the world in the Amazon jungle and share the gospel and build churches. It's exciting to think how the gospel has reached the ends of the earth. But this this is the other thing. The story isn't over. We don't have any solid reason to think that those days are gone forever and we should just let them go. The only thing that says those things can't happen anymore is our experience. And if you're a good Protestant, you don't let experience dictate Scripture. Scripture defines or interprets our experience, not the other way around. And so we want to let the Word of God speak to us. And if we haven't experienced something yet, let's not be afraid of it, but let's ask God to do what He's done before. And this is not a new thing. Remember, one of the minor prophets said, Lord, we've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your wonderful deeds. Renew them in our day and in our time. Make them known. He was saying, we've heard about these great things in Sunday school, but they're not happening today. Would you do them again? And that was the cry. Let that be our cry. We interpret our experiences by the Bible, and we can we can set it in the past, or we can set it in our past. We could say that ended with the apostles, and say, uh, you know, after John lays down on his his deathbed somewhere around AD ninety five or six, 
then the age of miracles ceased. But we have examples from the early church fathers that that's not the case. But here's the other thing that can happen. This sometimes happens in churches where we believe that the power of God is available for us today. And that's that we we can set it in our past. And it, in, in other words, it ends with a sign. There's some people that have sought the Holy Spirit because they wanted the gift of tongues. And once they got the gift of tongues, that was like their badge that says, I don't need to seek God anymore. I don't need to seek his presence. They wanted some other supernatural gift. God, give me that. And that's the marker that I'm done seeking. That's only the beginning. If God empowers you, if he fills you with his spirit, if you have a spirit-inspired speech of some kind, or if you have an experience where he's overwhelmed you, I don't want to box God in and how he's going to work here. But if he does something in this way, that's not the end. That's the beginning. We don't look back and go, I had it in 76, and that's good enough for me. We want to we want to have fresh experience with God today. This is not about seeking every day new salvation. This is about asking God to empower us today for what's needed for today. And we might be tempted to think that waiting on God for power was only at Pentecost, but you see it again and again that we need we need God's power again in Acts chapter 2. The Pentecostal experience was based on these two things, a precedent that had been set in the past, that God has poured out his spirit, and that's not been withdrawn. In Isaiah chapter 63, I'm in my conclusion, if you're getting worried here. Isaiah says, then this people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock, where is he who set by the Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths like a horse in open country? They did not stumble like cattle that go down the plain. They were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make yourself a glorious name. And I think too of Elijah, who struck the uh, Elisha who after seeing Elijah descend or ascend, i got to get that right, <laughs> he ascended into to heaven. Elisha walked away back to the brook, and he took Elijah's mantle, and he slapped the water, and he said, where now is the God of Elijah? And it's a recognition that we need. What has happened yesterday, we need to happen today, but it's not yesterday's experience that we seek. It's the present Holy Spirit that we need. Come on. Yesterday had its challenges, and sometimes we look at it like it's better than it was. We need him today. There are challenges today. And the Holy Spirit's as glorious today as he ever was. We need him. We need him. This is the longing expectation of God to come by his Spirit and do his work. Do we need Jesus less or more today? Do we need him? Do we need the Spirit any less today? I wonder, have you been weary and dry, maybe you feel like you've been pouring out from a vessel of flesh. I just uh, want to encourage you today, if that's how, where you're at, you come and be renewed in a fresh immersion of his presence. Uh, we don't have to get super theological about it. All we need to do is come with open hands and say, Lord, I need your power. I need your power. Will you help me? I've got a world of struggles personally. There's a world outside these walls that are struggling got a family that they need your spirit living in their midst. Will you help us? And if you come eager like that, God will pour out a spirit. And he's a wonderful spirit. He's a relational spirit. And he works on God's behalf. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention. I don't know that we can, I mean, you can if you want, but in this time that we have here, if we can tarry, and wait as long as we need to wait, but let's make a start, okay? And so I would invite you, if you're saying today, God, I need your spirit. I'm hungry for your spirit to come. And would you seek him? You don't need my touch. You need the Holy Spirit, okay? You need his touch. Would you be willing to say, Lord, come and meet me here? And uh, if you're trying to reach somebody for the Lord, you need the Holy Spirit's help. Maybe you would say to him, God, I'm at a 
stand still in this area. I need your help. If you're a parent, you need the Holy Spirit. You need to be a spirit-filled parent. Um, If you're a grandma or grandpa, you need a spirit-filled grandparent. We need God's Holy Spirit. As I was praying, I I felt like I should mention that um, there's a degree of, or a way in which the Spirit and the Son function. Spirit, the Bible says, um, glorifies Christ. Did you know that? It reminds us of everything that he said. And we know of Christ that he glorifies the Father. And so there's functional ways in which the Godhead is working in unison. And uh, he is one and yet three. I don't want to load you down with the heavy conundrum this morning of the Trinity, but I do want you to think that that when we speak of the Spirit, we are we're talking about the Spirit of God being um, enriched and entrenched in all the work of God. And so as we're inviting the Spirit in, it's, it's saying yes to Christ. It's saying yes to the Father as well. And so I just want to encourage you today, let's be open to what the Spirit has to do. And you might find that He does some strange things at times in our lives. But we trust Him. We trust the Lord, don't we? Will you trust Him and say, Lord, I know that whatever you have is good. And I want to be open to what you would do in my life. And uh, if you're going to be a witness for Jesus, we need God's Holy Spirit. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.